Welcome to Leadership 2020. I'm Claire Carpenter. Um, so I'm joined today by Sue McMillan, COO with Mumsnet. And Sue, thanks for joining me this afternoon. We're going to talk today about some of the challenges facing leaders around working to achieve the sort of holy grail of work-life balance, both for, I think it'd be interesting to think about that for you, but also for those people that you're responsible for and those people that you support in the workplace. So really interested to find your ideas around that. So what do you think about it as a subject title in the first instance? I think it's incredibly important. Mm. Um, you would probably expect me to say that coming from mum's net, but probably worth saying from the start, we are evangelical about work-life balance and making work work for mums and families and dads and anyone who has parental responsibilities. And I'm very pleased that we very much practice what we preach on this. So we employ around about 100 people at Mums Net, and I would say the majority of those work flexibly in one way or another. We really believe in the importance of getting work-life balance right. And we feel from our own experience and from all of the research out there, there is a really strong business case for making sure this happens within companies and is get right, it gets right. And I think you're seeing increasingly now more and more companies starting to realise that. We're still at the very beginning of the curve on it, mm. but it's something we felt passionately about for a long time and have done for a long time. And we feel we get a very high standard of talent in our organisation as a result of, I think, what's absolutely critical to it is focusing on output rather than inputs, which is hard and lots of people struggle with it, but it's absolutely worth doing and the business case is there to do it. So has that been a change of mindset for some of the leaders in your business based on their previous experience, do you think? Yeah, I think it is. I think, I mean, we grow a lot of our leaders from from the ground up, but I think potentially people that come in from elsewhere do struggle with it at first and feel you know if they can't see bums on seats from the usual hours of nine till five are they getting what they need from the people that are working for them but it's so ingrained in our culture that I think it happens and over time they understand yes these people working flexibly are are given as the same output as as ones maybe that that weren't I don't think you're ever finished in 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 making it happen within an organization i think i and everybody that's kind of leading a uh, mum's net constantly has to reinforce it with our line managers and you know from every single job description that comes to me before it goes out for for advert you know, checking every single one to say do you really need someone to work five days a week in order to do this job or could it work being flexible so you constantly need to make sure you are uh, reinforcing it but i think if you can do that yes i think over time People are convinced by it once they see it in action. So how did that come about in the first instance? I was thinking about how that culture grew from the beginning of the organisation. It's very much come from our CEO, Justine Roberts, who founded Mumsnet in 2000. And she does interviews and has spoken publicly about the fact that before she started Mumsnet, she started off in the city and found the culture of presenteeism there and almost having to... Uh, pretend you didn't have a family something that she wanted to make sure wasn't part of the business that she set up and then run and believing that you know not only was that the right thing to do but there were business advantages and opportunities to gain from doing it Mm. and I think that's been borne out in our experience but that's where it really started. 
I'm just thinking, so I coach some senior female leaders who have come to me and said, today I'm feeling like a failure at everything. You know, I'm failing as a mother, I'm failing as a leader, I'm failing in business. How does Mums Network to support, I guess, leaders in particular around finding the right balance in their life? The, well, the first of all, the flexibility aspect of it and recognising that parenting is a very imperfect thing. <laughs> and even when you're feeling like you're nailing it, next day something happens, something comes from no, some nowhere and you suddenly are, you know, completely hoodwinked and side, side blasted by it. So I think people recognize, I think that we've got a, we've, we've just produced a, a culture deck in the last few months, which kind of sets out what we believe in terms of our values and behaviors that go into them. And there's one particularly person and slide in it, which says working at mum's net means not having to pretend you don't have a family. You know, we'll always allow you, we'll always allow you to go to the school play or the sports day. You don't have to miss them and then we've got in brackets um, unless you really want to because we recognize for some people they they might want an excuse to get out of going to the school play or, or the sports day but I think putting that up front when people join us and saying to them look it is okay everybody here understands what the reality of parenting means which is that you you know you will just all of a sudden something will happen yeah. And everything that you, all your very carefully planned childcare arrangements or your commute or your working day has all thrown out. And I think having that as something that is articulated, discussed, and anytime anybody's talking to the line manager and says, I'm really sorry, I've got to go. Is that okay? It's always, yes, of course, just mm-hmm. go. There's a really key part of that. So just thinking about another point of view with regard to work-life balance, how does that flexibility impact on individuals who work with you who don't have a family, do you think? Well, we believe that flexibility is something that should be offered to everybody. And actually, it's not just about family. Mm. You know, that I've seen a lot of research recently suggesting younger workers, millennials and even younger, believe that actually work-life balance is, a, is an important aspect. And companies that aren't realising that and providing it to all uh, staff are potentially missing out on an important talent pool um, if they're not if they're not giving it. I myself worked flexibly at Mumsnet before I had children, so I think all through the organisation you're allowed and offered that mm-hmm. um, as long as it works for the rest of the team and as long as you can get your job done, then it doesn't matter whether you have children or not. I think the reality is just that people that have children sometimes need it a bit more and more urgently than yeah. than, the, than those who don't but it's not a you can only allow you can only request this you're only allowed this if you have children and thinking about mums as a forum now what sort of feedback are you hearing from your communities around how other organizations are coping with this i think it's interesting i definitely feel for the last five years things are changing and more companies are open to flexibility and starting to introduce it and you see the introduction of agile working at the big four and you know lots of lots of companies starting conversations about it i think what we found in a very recent survey is there's a bit of a danger of almost a kind of two-tier thing happening whereby jobs in the knowledge economy and better paid are becoming more flexible and some in some sectors are being left behind either because it's not at all possible, which some employers still say to me, there is no way we could introduce flexibility into this work. It's just the nature of it. Or I think in others, there's just not been the will to have that imagination about reimagining how this could work. I strongly believe most jobs 
can be made flexible if people at the top are willing to put the thought into how they could be made flexible. And the example I always point to on this, which is a big area of work for our audience, is, is education. So, you know, education, especially in cities, London especially, is really struggling in terms of talent mm. at the moment, cost of living and everything else. So there's a real, for me, imp- imperative for, for schools to, to think about how can we encourage more talent. There's a huge, huge number. I forget the, the number, but there's a huge number of women, especially who've been trained as teachers, who've left the occupation because it didn't work for them in, in terms of flexibility. You know, it's hard to work part time and you can't just drop things if there's an emergency at home. So many people leave the profession at the point at which they have children as far as I'm aware and I might be wrong nobody in education or very few people in education seem to be thinking about how do we redesign teaching jobs is there a way we could reimagine how this works in order to put more flexibility into people's jobs and it is that hard it is hard no one's saying this is easy I think what we are saying is there's a huge business case for this so I think it's mixed. I think some employers are really understanding the benefits for not not just women, for men as well. Mm. And seeing, you know, one employer, one very large employer I, I spoke to told me that the business case that they'd drawn up for introducing agile working had proven itself three, four, five times over beyond their wildest dreams was the phrase they used to explain what happened when they introduced it from a, from a business point of view. But it's not everywhere. And are you seeing an increased appetite for it in the conversations that you're having? From employers, absolutely. Mm. I think absolutely people are interested in it, either doing it, have done it for a few years, interested in how they could do it Mm. and starting to have that conversation. But I think it's perhaps more the case in the kind of the knowledge sector, knowledge economy than it is in some of the other sectors. I'm just thinking about what advice you might give to a business leader who has I guess acknowledge that a greater degree of flexibility would be beneficial to them, but isn't sure sort of how to start changing more entrenched processes in their organisation. There's a number of things I'd say. I think there's a lot of shared learnings out there at the moment in terms of what works and what doesn't. Come and talk to Mums Net. We can help you. A bit of a plug there, but we can help you with how you might begin to introduce it. I think definitely the biggest piece of advice I would give that I've learned from talking to employers is you have to bring your line managers with you on it. And I think line managers are absolutely critical to making it work. So I've seen a number of companies that have said, we've got a policy on this. We've said everyone can do flexible working, Mm. but for some reason it's not happening. I think that's a challenge. And I think it's all very well introducing a policy, but if you haven't got your line managers both on board, understanding why you're doing it and then how to actually implement it and make it work on a job by job level Mm -hmm. I think a lot of companies are struggling with that issue and I think it's about training showcasing best practice from across an organization where a job that you really didn't think could ever be made flexible suddenly has been and it's working and you're still achieving what you need to achieve I think they're definitely a piece of advice I would give to people and back to making sure line managers understand that they're managing for output rather than input Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how important communication is across that piece, isn't it, as well? Yeah. And we've talked in particular there about the line managers and I guess whatever can be done to remove any unconscious bias from that process would be useful, wouldn't mm. it? The unconscious bias is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it, lots of people in the diversity and in inclusion initiatives that you see, you know, unconscious bias training seems to come up quite a lot. But I've read some research recently that says there's, there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that unconscious bias training can actually 
increase in unconscious bias by drawing people's attention to it. So I think yeah. it's a tricky one. I think everyone's kind of grappling with it at the moment, but it's good that we recognize that it exists. I think that's the first step. And then I think, but maybe training people not to do it might not be the only answer for how you, uh, how you get rid of it. And have you seen any examples of really good practice outside of Mumsnet that you would draw attention to here? Deloitte is all, is a great example there of a member of our we have a we have a family friendly program where we work with employers who are either on the journey to becoming more family friendly mm. or are already there and I think Deloitte are one of our members and they introduced agile working 4 years ago now to all 12,000 members of their employees they were all able to request it and they said it was about three things so it was a, a about giving them the tools to allow people to work wherever and whenever is best for them trusting them to make the right decisions and as i've already mentioned judging them on their output and i think that's a great framework to start it off with um and then to have actually implemented it across the organization and they're very pleased with the results of it and you know the, the managing partner for talent told me she gets emails all the time from people saying you have literally changed my life by allowing me to work in this way I can now see my family I can read my children bedtime stories in a way that I couldn't before so I would definitely hold them up as a as a good proponent I, I think they'd be the first to admit they're not perfect and they've still got more to do on it but they they seem to have got something right on that yeah there's a talent shortage isn't there and especially it's interesting to think about some of the professional services businesses mm. that must be having an impact for them in terms of talent attraction and retention absolutely I mean I think it works at all levels doesn't it it works at the graduate level because people are looking after not very long after starting a job they you know we know younger women start to look and think okay well at some point I want to have children how is this company going to respond to me having children mm. there's been a lot of research I think by PwC and that's part of their Opportunity Now project which says that there's you know young women start around about 28 to start thinking oh I may have to opt out of my career path because actually I, I, I don't want to do what's required of me in order to get to the senior level mm-hmm. um, so why continue up until now so I think being able to say we will make this work for you we will do everything we can to give you the balance you need to be able to have a family works at that level I think it works at that level of attracting people back into the workplace so we know women that've had career breaks again a number of organizations focusing on returnships and understanding that there is a as as there is a shortage of skills and talent this is an untapped talent pool of people women who've had a career break often find themselves going back in at a much lower level than they're capable of both in terms of skills and experience mm-hmm. and i think again there was a report done recently that said if if we crack this we would add billions of pounds in terms of productivity to, to our economy we badly need at the moment so yes it's a it's a huge area and i think back to what i said about it being a business case it's mm-hmm. not just the right thing to do from a kind of moral thing it's genuinely a huge strong business case for doing it and getting it right it's something in there as well around the support that an organization offers that kind of individual re-entering the workplace Mm. as well There's, there's something there for me around confidence and feeling empowered to actually work differently than perhaps you might have done yeah. previously. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we're seeing that with a number of the returnships. They're, they seem to be fairly concentrated in particular sectors at the moment. So the financial sector in, in particular is running returnships and they are a combination of coaching 
mentoring mm. and a little bit of training. And, and also what some people quite liked is they have a kind of fixed term nature to them, which actually from both the returner and the employer side works quite well because mm. the employer has a period in which to kind of see if this is the right fit for them. But the returners I spoke to said they appreciated that as well because actually it was, you know, after 10 years that some people take out of the workplace, somebody said, it was like traveling to a different planet, you know, from thinking about things that you don't even think about. Like, you know, one woman said to me, I had to buy a whole new wardrobe. And so actually a fixed term period of testing this out rather than a big commitment to, all right, I'm going back to work in this position in this company permanently works quite well. I think the only issue I would say is I think some employers, many employers are struggling to make them scale. I think because of the nature of them being, you know, coaching, mentoring, training, they're quite hands-on, resource-heavy. And I think, you know, a lot of organisations are saying to me, we are going to struggle to take more than 20, 30 career break returners per year. And so I think a lot are looking around at more innovative solutions to try and make them scale up in a bigger way, really. And it strikes me that we're talking perhaps about individuals in more senior roles, particularly given the support that you've just mentioned. Have you seen any evidence that this is, as you say, we're talking about scalability, but have you seen any evidence that this is also on the agenda for less paid roles or for lower paid roles? Well, I think this is an issue, actually, that we've identified at Mums there. We did a, we did some research last year that showed break seemed to be people paid above £25,000 a year and people paid below £25,000 a year and the people paid above £25,000 a year seemed to think that their companies were doing a lot better if not yet perfect on introducing family-friendly policies and those on a on a lower salary struggling more with that so I think that's something we should be very mindful of and certainly encourage you know government and policymakers to think about it because I think there is a little bit of a tendency to perhaps once you start to move the likes of the FTSE 100 and, and other companies along a journey on flexible working and family-friendly policies to start patting yourself on the back and saying, we've cracked this. But actually, really, to make it work, we need to work make it work for everybody. And so and we need to keep that in mind, I think. Do you think there'll be some industries or some sectors that are more inclined to work on that than others? Yeah, I think, as I say, I think it's what we've seen so far is that in some industries and sectors, it's easier. In the knowledge economy, you know, when, when it's all about one person contributing what they think their thoughts to to work Mm -hmm. the invention of tools like slack and skype and all the kind of collaboration tools that enable remote working Mm -hmm. where you can do your job from home that's easier you can see a path to flexible working somebody said to me for example trading is harder because you have to be in a regulated area it's not yet in, allowed to be done from home so financial s- sector companies are struggling with their gender pay gap as a result that's one of the reasons why they're struggling with their gender pay gap as a result mm-hmm. uh, and education where you know you have to be in a classroom you can't you can't really teach from home yet so i think yes it's harder in some sectors than others but I don't think it's impossible. I think it just requires a bit more imagination, a bit more creativity and prioritisation as a business. And you might see that in some of the caring professions as well, mightn't you? Absolutely. A similar set of physical circumstances making it hard to achieve. So in terms of, I guess, just sort of summarising our discussion and just sort of bringing our discussion to a close, if you were to give sort of a couple of key pieces of advice to an organisation or a leader, business leader, wanting to really work with uh, her or his workforce to 
really improve their work-life balance where would be the where would be a good place for them to start do you think I always think you start with a business case and I think the business case uh, there's, there's a number of different factors of a business case for for this but I think the business case for, for diversity is proven and and I think that's what you're getting with this and you know we flexibility of course is important for men and women but it's a women's gender pay gap. It's the women who are falling out of the pipeline and not getting into the the, the senior management roles within organisation. And we know the business case for diversity is proven. We know you get more sales revenue, you get more customers, you get gains in market share, you get more innovation, you get better. You're better as a business at solving complex problems when you have a more diverse team within your business. So I think start with that business case and make it about this is not just the right thing to do it's the business thing to do within this organization Mm. and then start a small scale test you know start a few roles and see if they can be reimagined to be working on a on a flexible basis and I think you will quite quickly see some improved results I think I always say to people who are fixated on the nine till five five days a week thing there's two things i'd say first of all that was a that's a relatively new invention the nine to five five days a week it was actually we used to work six days a week and ford introduced the five days a week and actually saw productivity increase as a result of it Mm. but that was a long time ago in a far different world so there's nothing written in stone that says nine to five five days a week is absolutely the, the right place the right way to work and i think lots of people are doing some research and experiments around that at the moment but the other interesting thing i read was that they reckon that or people working for those eight hours are really only productive for two hours and 53 minutes of them. So I think it's about being honest and saying, you know, what what am I actually getting from the people I'm insisting are at their desks between the hours of nine or five or eight or six or whatever it is? And why don't I just test doing it a slightly different way and seeing what I can get as a result of it? And I have literally spoken to nobody who has said, oh, I tried flexibility and it didn't work. Everybody has a good positive story to tell about business improvements, improvements in the happiness of the people that work, improvements in retention for the people that work for them. So I think that would be the place to start. Good advice. Thank you very much, Sue. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a rating and review to help others find out about the show. This is a Podo podcast produced by Nick Hilton in association with Corndell. Thank you.